0: We are sort of concluding the sermon series that we've been in, Waking from the Dream. Um, And over the last three weeks, we have been uh, really delving into what it means uh, to be a racially reconciled people. Why is it that this is something that is of value to us? Why do we do this thing? So if you were here last week, then you know... um, it was, it was kind of weird. So we had everybody set up and we, we took an opportunity to go around and hear from each person. And the, re- we, the reason we did that is because we really did want to hear from every person in our church um, about how they understand Jesus in light of racial reconciliation and what that means for them. And so that's what we did last week. Uh, this week we are going to get a little bit more in depth. And so we have our lovely panel up here. Um, and in a moment they'll introduce themselves. But there are a few questions that we're going to have them answer before all of us. And then at the end, we're hoping that there'll be some time to have question and answer. So if you all have some comments or some questions, um, we want to create space for you to be able to do that as well. Um, but I want to, just before we uh, delve into that, I just want to spend a brief moment talking about why this is of value to us um, and also sort of grounding this whole thing in the scripture that we've been using for, this, for this, this sermon series. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 6. Um and I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. I'm going to put something down. Okay. Okay. And that's not going to come up. I'm waiting for it to come on the screen. So that's not going to come up on the screen. So if you don't have a Bible, if you don't mind looking over with someone or trying to share or just listen because I'm going to go ahead and read it for us. So, it says in those days When the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of, of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. And we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So this is the word of God. You, God. Amen. So um, as you may recall, Pastor David sort of teaching on this text. So th- there's one thing that it is important. When, when we read this and we hear about the Hebraic Jews and, and the Hellenistic Jews, this isn't necessarily a racial Dispute, right? Because race was not a construct at that time. But this was definitely um a, an ethnic dispute. Two different groups of people who um who are culturally different and who are having some problems, who are not getting along in the context of the community. And one thing that's important to note is that when these issues arose, they were treated with respect. The people, the leaders, the, the apostles heard this and they handled it, one, which is important. They handled it, it was important. But two, it's important how they handled it. They didn't just say, okay, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. They recognized that there was something wrong with the structure. There was something wrong with the system. I mean, the reason why the, the Hellenistic Jews were being, widows were being left out wasn't necessarily because the Hebraic Jews were just like evil people or didn't want them to be fed, but there was already a structure in place to take care of widows. And so people who were Hebraic Jews were a part of those networks. They were a part of those social structures. The Hellenistic Jews would have been isolated from family. They would have been isolated from the the social structures and systems that would have provided for them as well. And so there was an identification that there's something wrong with the system. And so we need to change the system. We need to change the structure. And part of what they did to address that wasn't just to say, hey, let us identify some people from among you, um... But most scholars agree that the, that the names of the folk, we know that the names of the people who were chosen are Hellenistic names, right? These were Greek names. And so more than likely, the people who were empowered to sort of um, implement these changes in structure were people who were from that group that was being oppressed. That's important, it means that even in this time, as as we say all of the time, and I love uh, Pastor David talks about this a lot when he preaches, that God is a specific God. He cares about the specificity of who we are, right? He came in a specific time, in a specific body, in a specific historical and social moment and context. He cares about that. And so this is further evidence that he cares about that. And so we too should care about these things. And so what I want to um, just spend a, a very, very brief moment um, sort of reiterating is why racial reconciliation matters at all. There are a lot of churches, m- maybe not a whole, whole lot, but there are a number of churches that desire to be multiracial, multiethnic churches, right? And you, can, you could, if you wanted to, find several churches in Chicago where you can walk in and maybe see a lot of multicolored bodies and faces, But there are ways to do multiracial ministry that are less healthy than other ways of doing multiracial ministry. If we don't take time to talk about reconciliation, if we don't take time to delve into what are those hurts, what are those, what is the, the racism and the ugliness that lies beyond the surface? We might not see it when we come and everybody has on their best face and we're all smiling and we're so happy to be here and we love God and we love Jesus and then we leave and we don't know anything about each other. We don't care to know anything about each other. Our assumptions and our stereotypes don't get challenged, right? That can happen. You can go to a church like this your whole entire life and never be challenged to look at the ugliness in your own heart, the brokenness in your own heart when it comes to race and racism, the way that you get at that, the way that you go beyond the surface is to push into reconciliation. We serve a God who is a God of reconciliation. That is the, the core of our faith, that Jesus Christ came and died for us so that we who are sinful could be brought into relationship with a God who is holy. That is what we believe, right? We were reconciled to God. And we know that God is constantly in the business of reconciling. And so when we talk about reconciliation, we're not necessarily saying that, you know, one day we'll get back to the way it used to be when (laughs) all people in this country of every race just loved each other and cared for one another. Because we haven't seen that. day; That hasn't happened yet. So we're not going back to anything. (laughs) We don't want to go backwards. We are being reconciled to a vision Um, of God for oneness and wholeness. We're being reconciled to the work that Christ did on the cross where he made us one. We're being reconciled to something that none of us have ever seen before, (laughs) but that we know is possible and we know has been done in Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So what we're going to talk about today is, is we're going to continue to talk about that. Um, and I'm going to go over here and I'm going to let our panel, um, introduce themselves.
1: Uh, hello,
2: I'm Aaron, um, and I'm supposed to do the other part of it, too, right?
0: (laughs) Okay, so, We didn't
2: didn't clarify if we were going to do this part or not. Am I doing this part?
0: So, what we're going to do, our pal, you are going to do this part, so they're going to introduce themselves, and please tell us your name, and tell us how you identify racially or ethnically. Sorry,
2: I'm doing that. Okay. Um, I am Aaron, uh, racially, I identify depending on the context of the conversation, African American,
1: Black, Pan African. Uh, my name is Juan. I identify as Korean American.
3: My name is Be- uh, My name is Bethany. I
4: identify as white. I am Evit. I am okay. I identify myself first as Mexican, second as Latina like for 10 years now, and then racially, that's a very complicated question, uh, because it it also, I guess, depends, um, since Latinos are, you know, a colonized people, so we're Native Americans, or indigenous people, and black and white, so it depends, Do you tell me what (laughs) I look like, so that's all.
5: Um, And I'm Q, and I identify as black, but never African American, I guess more on that later
0: say that one more time
5: just black never african-american
0: i didn't i wanted to hear that last part that after the african amer not ever african-american
5: oh but i guess more on that later you want to know why
0: oh. yeah i do that's a good oh. segue go okay, ahead i want to
5: know why um, <laughs> um because i believe that the term itself is misconstrued and misused a lot um it's made the assumption that Africa is a country instead of a continent. And I think that it's a blanket term that doesn't really um, encompass all of the cultures that live there. So, like, there's tons of countries in this continent. So you don't know by that term whether I'm from Ghana or Nigeria or Kenya, neither do I because my people were slaves, so we don't really know. And so just to throw that term out there, um, it's something that erases all of the cultures that make Africa um, what it is.
0: That was dope. All right, so, um, so the first question, and, and um, I want all of you all to answer this question. How does internalized racism impact your view of yourself and other people of your race or ethnicity? One more time.
5: Sorry. Can you ask one more time?
0: Yes. Um, how does internalized racism impact your view of yourself and other people of your race or ethnicity?
5: Um, so internalized racism means that we live in a system that is, that was made and created not by us, um, so that we have to endure struggles every day in order to overcome who we are. Um, and so by being that, by being black and a woman, um, the struggle of internalized racism is a struggle to understand and love yourself in spite of a message where you're not meant to be loved. Um, so, for me, that means embracing terms like black is beautiful or maybe you've heard the term black girl magic or um, carefree black person. Um, all of those terms to me bring in a sense of power in a, in a system that um, doesn't really care to see whether I thrive or not. So.
4: Um. <clears throat> I think I want to premise this by saying that I spent most of my formative years in Mexico. So I spent 27 years in Mexico. And I have to say that in that context, my culture, me, like I was celebrated. Um, I never saw, I never thought that Mexican was an insult until I came to this country. And I was told, you know, sort of like, is it okay if I call you Mexican? I'm like, I am Mexican, so it's okay. <laughs> um, so <laughs> in that sense, um, I think that I have a lot of pride um, you know, for my culture, and but I do see, and I think being in the U.S. has allowed me to see how um, people in my country, um, and also here, Latinos here, um, and again, I'm just speaking from what I see, I'm not a spokesperson for all Mexicans or all Latinos, <laughs> um, I see that there is still, you know, this like standard of what we should like sort of aspire to be which is the colonizer you know the european um that's that's the yeah so i think now i i see it more clearly in um certain expressions in my in my country um certain um just like a tendency to sort of deny our indigenous blood also our African blood and try to lean more into our European, you know, background. Um, yeah. So, anyway, I have other things, but... <laughs> <There you go. laughs>
3: yeah. Um, my context is, you know, I'm white, I have dominant culture, and so it's always been told to me that I am normal and everything else is the other or ethnic or something else. Um, and so you, in, you... No matter what, however you try, so I, um, you have to be intentional to go against that. Um, you have to be intentionally t- to notice and to realize, even unintentionally, when am I talking? About, oh, this is just normal. When it's really just white culture, and so that's how you know. Um, and I still do it, no matter how much you learn and how many cultures you've been in and everything. It's still a part of of this brokenness that it's a part of me, and so and I think that affects. Um, you know, how does it affect others of my, of my own race? It affects us hugely um, because we don't get the richness. I think we, could, we see other as, as bad or less than, and we lose out dramatically on kingdom.
1: So. Uh, actually, my answer kind of segues a little bit from Bethany. Is this? I think for me, I experience it mostly as sort of a profound sense of other. Um, I think for most of my life, I grew up around mostly white people and some Asians. Um, I think for me, it was really trying to blend in. And the moments in which I couldn't because my otherness was sort of exposed, I guess, whether just because of the way I look or you know, some offhand insanely racist comment somebody made would make me feel very different. Um, and I think it's in those moments where I realize, oh, I'm not i'm not white i'm not the same as these people around me uh and i think it's it's a part that's it's made me den it's it's made me many times in my life sort of want to deny that i'm different right and sort of try to blend in as much as possible um which creates this really interesting sort of dynamic because does uh, the second part of the question of how does it affect or how do i sort of perceive others in my in my race uh I'm always very aware if I'm like in a group of Asians, I'm always very aware that I'm in a group of Asians, particularly if we're in a non Asian context. So, because part of me honestly just doesn't want to feel like, oh, I'm, I'm identified now as one of those Asians who only hangs out with other Asian people. Um, but at the same time, there's a comfort in being around people who look like me and who shared similar experiences. So, I think, I mean, I guess just to sum up my answer, it's really about just feeling different than the norm. Uh, in spite of myself, in spite of not wanting to, just I can't escape that reality. And that's something I've lately been trying to come to grips with more. And instead of just walking away from that or trying to just let those feelings pass to really explore why is that or why does that matter so much and what does it mean for me to be Korean-American in an environment that doesn't look like me. Um, And often I think... Forgets that I exist, uh, if that makes sense, like people like me or our experiences, or kind of like this idea of like, oh Asian Americans are all the same, which is also very inaccurate. Um, I will stop there
2: yeah, I don't know if so how does internalized racism impact view of self and other people of and other people of my race and ethnicity? Um, so when I answer this question. Um, I can't really separate myself from the rest of the ethnicity when I answer. So I guess I'm kind of—I don't want to sound like I'm—I'm I'm not going to go into this like a know-it-all, like I'm speaking for all of the Black people. But I don't necessarily separate the two uh, because I guess for me personally, being African American, I feel like that you gr- you're grown up, socialized a certain way. So how I view myself in, in this context of internalized racism, I gained it from other Black people. So. Um. I guess I would start off with, one, I, I, and, and I feel like that I'm still in the process of, but having to mentally divorce myself from Eurocentricity. Um, I grew up going to school with white children my whole life. Even if I lived in predominantly black neighborhoods, I got bused to the Midway Airport neighborhood where back in the day it was, you know, pretty much Eastern European, Irish, Polish, and all that. And so we were a group of black and Latino kids coming from the east side going to the southwest side. Um, in the context of itself, everybody was white except for a couple of black folks, as far as teachers and admin, a couple of folks. Um, so, white was always the standard. Uh, when it came to going to good schools, white is the standard. When it came to neighborhoods, white is the standard, right? The second you get money, uh, you go move into a whiter neighborhood. Um, when you watch TV, everyone was white. So, which is, you know, when Cosby and Different World came out, that was a big deal because everybody was white. So, white was consistently the standard in my life growing up, even though I lived in predominantly black communities. When I went to high school, it was more than 50% white, even though we had a lot of black kids. From admin to the teacher, I don't think I had one black teacher all through high school. Um, So, again, white was the standard. Uh, College, went to a white evangelical college. It consistently became the standard. So, the standard of beauty, the standard of success, the standard of culture, the standard of everything you did. So, my existence in being black was really an existence in white, in, in, in Um, Which I really didn't start the process Of mentally divorcing from Until I had left Chicago for a while Because staying in Chicago I, w- I went to um, undergrad I went to undergrad in Chicago So then when I moved to D.C. I was able to leave um, That environment Be able to finally detach from that college environment um, And leave everything I've ever known in Chicago For a couple of years And whereas D.C. You know it was just like it was, uh, I, since I wasn't attached to any white systems there, by nature, things that I sought out, just, I kind of fell into black. Um, I lived in a predominantly black neighborhood, as always, but then I went to a, I would visit a church once in a while that was predominantly black, and then I did this that was black, and, you know, I would still hang out in other places that were diverse, but I, I wasn't constantly socialized in the sense of Eurocentricity, so I, I it left with a um, A lot of reflecting and then coming back to Chicago and getting back into my South Side roots and South Suburban roots where I'm born and raised out this way. Um, And then just reading and stuff and, and just, you know, it was just, uh, I had to deconstruct that standard of whiteness in my life for everything. Like how come my kid got to go to school with white people in order to be called a good school? How come I got to live in a white neighborhood in order for it to be a nice neighborhood? How come I got to this and that, you know, and questioning those things. Um, But then realizing how entrenched I notice other black people are in that because when I say something about black businesses or if I say something about uh, empowerment of black neighborhoods and things like that, I get black people who will either like in conversation when we're face to face or send me messages like uh, over the internet, private messages and stuff like, what is the deal? Like I'm being radical by being black. You know what I'm saying? Like, but, but at the same time, you will go to a white neighborhood, a white bank, a white school, a white this, that's normal. But the idea of a black person having control of themselves and freedom of themselves, the fact that I don't have to be dependent on a white person, that's radical. You know what I'm saying? Like some, like but and these are black people I'm arguing with. These aren't white people. Like honestly, some of the most interesting thing is like one of my white friends growing up, you know, Irish guy lives in California now, but we go back and forth on Facebook. And he was honest, like, he wasn't sure where I was coming from with this, but he goes, actually, I really respect that. You know what I'm saying? Because when he sits down and looks at it and he looks around, yeah, I am white. We running this. You know what I'm saying? Like, he keeps it real, though. Like, when he talks to me, like, we've known each other since high school. And so it's just funny to me is that, like, I probably get more pushback and more criticism from your own people than you do people of other groups because at the end of the day, they own their own stuff. That's theirs. You know what I'm saying? But black people have been so socialized that the problem with, that the internalized racism comes in is that in Western civilization, black people measure their success and measure their self-worth with how well they navigate white supremacy. Right? If I can be successful in this white man's system, then I'm doing something right. As opposed to saying, why is the white man in control of this whole system in the first place? So to me, that's, and I'm still, and even me myself in the midst of this, I'm still trying to deconstruct that for myself because I was raised in that too.
0: That's good, thank you. Um, so that's going to lead us to the second question. So how do you recognize um, the oppression of other minority groups and what responsibility do you have to address it?
2: Oh, wow. Thank yeah. <laughs> Um
4: Okay, so I think it goes a little bit into um, the whole internalized racism and also how I understand um, being Mexican and being Latino, um, I think if we were to understand ourselves fully with our fully like racial background, right? To know that we are, you know, indigenous people; that we are also, you know, there were enslaved Africans coming to our our shores. Um, I think then we would be able to see how our lives and our fate is, like, interconnected with that of other minority groups. And specifically, and here um, in the U.S., um, with that of African-Americans. Um, I remember somebody told me this, um, and it was an African-American woman. She said, because I was talking to her about, like, going, like, whether I should or shouldn't go to, like, the Sankofa trip. Like, how does that, you know, what, why, why me? And she said, like, if you go, you would be able to see how the system that is now oppressing your people, like being Latinos, like how did it start? Um, And I think uh, going a little bit back on the whole um, um, internalized racism, it is because Latinos are trying to back away from from that, like from, from our African roots, from our um, indigenous roots, and try to identify with, um, uh, you know, more like with our European background, that we are, that's that's internalized racism. And I mean, I, I sort of like, I understand it, um, in the sense that, it's, I don't think anybody wants to think of themselves as like being oppressed. Um, but I, I often find myself actually getting into conversations with other Latinos, like, asking me, like, why are you, like, marching for, like, Black Lives Matter? Or why are you, you know, um, living in, in, in a, a black neighborhood? And why, and I think, I just want to slap everybody um, at times, <laughs> and see, like, you need to, like, wake up and actually learn your history and learn like about who um we are even though it's really it's it's confusing you know because we're everything and we're i and i mean in terms of racial construct we're everything and we're nothing we're like this completely new thing race um so yeah, I don't, yeah.
0: <laughs> Anybody else have thoughts on that question?
3: For me, I think um, one big thing that I've always taken on and I think we need to do is just name it, call it out when it's happening. It doesn't matter if it's a social setting, if it's a, you know what's, what's happening with the system, but really calling it out because if we don't name it, then it keeps hidden and that's Satan's great tool. And so how how do I name it? How do we you know, I remember, um I fly out of Midway all the time and that um there's a bookstore that always has all these magazines and nine times out of ten I walk by that and it's all white faces out on those magazines. So I'll take pictures of it and I'll post it on Facebook and just calling it out. And I get really negative bad comments about it. Well, if you don't like it then start your own magazines and all this really <laughs> ignorant stuff. But um but just the even how aware we are you know and really pushing my white counterparts of even when they when judging other behavior that's in the news, judging it upon the standard of whiteness and what does that look like And in school systems, you know well that school is like this because well let's look at the school system. what is it actually saying, what's the standard there? So just keep pushing and keep um, calling it out because I think that's I mean that's the very very beginning and you, you can't even lament it until you start calling it out.
1: Yeah, I think for me, sort of my personal journey, it's, I mean, on one hand I see it everywhere, right? But it's also, for me, I have the privilege to be able to not see it if I choose not to because I'm i am not directly involved, right? So for me, I've had to sort of learn. And if anyone who's in that situation, who who can sort of hide in privilege, I would really strongly recommend reading as much as you can, particularly about how Christians are almost worse at this than non-Christians. And to me, when I started seeing that, the undeniable statistics, and that blew me away because, I mean, one, on one hand, I'm I'm, I'm Korean-American, but on the other hand, I'm a Christian. And I think as a Christian, we cannot deny that this is important. We can't just look away. Um, it, it, it's just not, we just can't. I, I don't see how you can be a Christian and not give this an honest amount of time, and reflection, and, pr- and and repentance, and prayer, all that stuff. Um, and so, but, but sort of uniquely from my own sort of Korean perspective, I guess, I think the reading part of it, I mean, there's always these studies, and it's always sort of a black-white thing, right? And that's fine, I understand why that is, but I've had to really sort of, and I'm still in the process of figuring out, like, well, what does that mean for me, right? Because again, I could sort of bleed into being white if I wanted to, but... More and more, frankly, I'm finding that to be very unattractive. Um, so well, what does that mean? Right? And, and that's something I'm still exploring. But frankly, it's as simple as just trying to like, and this is going to sound real simple and like, oh, well, anyone can do that. And I think maybe that's the point is I just start to get to know people who look different from me, who have different experiences from me. Um, I mean, certainly living in a neighborhood where most people don't look like me helps. So, I mean, this doesn't sound silly, but even when I'm like walking my dog, I try to say hi to people. Uh, and 70% of them walk by me and maybe give me a weird look, but that's okay. Um, part of it because there are, you know, Asians who live in my neighborhood, but I've never really seen them interacting with people who aren't, who don't look like them. And I don't want to be that guy. You know what I mean? Um, and it may count for very little, but I feel like it matters. Uh, and so for me, it's, it's focusing on what's around me. You know, I, I can certainly, and, and I should aspire to do bigger things, right? Um, calling stuff out publicly but I also think for me it matters to like what does my everyday life look like who am I interacting with who am I giving time and energy toward and who do I care to sit down and like have a conversation with uh and that stuff has formed me it hasn't been that long but I feel like I'm a different person now than I was you know a year ago two years ago uh and I certainly hope that continues to be the case um you know going forward so
2: Uh, I guess from my standpoint, I think I'm I'm only speaking, well, clearly from a personal experience is that, uh, because, you know, growing up, uh, constantly being the minorities in our schools, uh, you know, I would go to school with Latinos as well. And so by nature, blacks and Latinos, because we were in predominantly white schools and we kept having racial issues, uh, we would always come together a lot. Um, And especially from having neighborhoods that were in closer proximity to each other. on our bus rides over. So we spent a lot of time together and then we end up on a doorstep of white schools and white neighborhoods. And it's like, all right, you ready? We're ready. You know, it's just like, you know, and we go in. Um, So it's just, you know, from me growing up, it's more about, you know, how you speak up for those other races and whatnot. Um, it's be- being able to point out what it is. Although I do have the mindset, like, I can't, I can't, I can always be in support of another race when they're being oppressed and being discriminated against. But my thing is I can't, I can't liberate you for you. You know what I'm saying? But I can point it out. And if there needs to be coalitions, we can have coalitions, but you need to liberate yourself. It's your community. It's your culture. Those are your people. Um, And so I think that's, that's where I am with that. Um, And I think that's where I've always been in that sense. Um, And I feel like we did that in college a lot with, like, the Black Student Association and LASO, the Latin American Student Association, you know what I'm saying? We would support each other, you know what I'm saying, and respect each other's cultures and and come out for each other's events and things like that. And, you know, sometimes it is one of those things where, honestly, like, when I see something happen to, say, like, a South Asian or something happen to uh, a Southeast Asian, someone who's darker, someone who might be from the Caribbean or South America, it's just, you know, sometimes it's kind of like, you know, you kind of, I, I kind of do look over, and I'm just like, you see it? You get it now? So you ready? You know what I'm saying? It's just like, you know, been there, done that. Let's go. Um, and so it's, um, you know, I guess that's, that's my mindset and where I'm at now. Like, you have to be able to point it out. But, you know, at the same time, at the end of the day, no one's going to actually empower you but you. That's
0: something.
5: Um, I think going back to the question of the first part where it says, how do you recognize the oppression of other minority groups? Um, I think people can see and recognize when another minority group is being oppressed. I just don't think that people are ready to accept the privilege of that recognition. Um, And by that, I mean, in order to recognize that people are being oppressed, you have to recognize in which ways you are not. And sometimes that's really uncomfortable for people um, to recognize. We, we just cannot be afraid of privilege or talking about privilege or even like cringing at the sound of privilege because that's the only way that you recognize that someone else is being oppressed. And so even me as a black woman, I still have privilege because I identify as heterosexual. I'm able-bodied. I'm all of these things. And so while being a black woman is like pretty long people's totem poles. Um, I can still like walk into a restaurant and not worry about my wheelchair getting through the door or worry about being transgender and being in a bathroom. and like, might, I might get beat up because of what I am, and I know that, and I accept that I have privilege. I have financial privilege from some people in my community, and that is what it is. And I think that when you take on a sense of guilt about that, that's when you start blocking out how to help other people. Um, and you don't want to address it because you take on this sense of guilt when it's not even about you. So you need to take yourself out of it. Um, and I think that with the responsibility to address it, I don't think that you have to necessarily identify with someone who is being oppressed to want to do something. So there's not many churches or groups of people who have to talk about, like, this is why homelessness is terrible. This is why sex trafficking is terrible. Um, if you've never been, okay, I can't identify. I've never been homeless. I've never been sex trafficked. Uh, okay, there's still pretty bad things. So why is it that you have to be black or Latino or something to be like no i'm gonna do something i think people are always in the sense of well i don't really know where i fit in and it's a binary issue so i don't really want to get involved that's not how you treat social justice and racial inequality is a social justice issue and i think that if you can first know that even by addressing it um, simply with even starting a conversation and um, making sure that your opinions are heard that's addressing it because even if we don't know how to um, fully solve an issue, like I don't know how to solve the issue of homelessness. I don't know how to solve a lot of the drug issues in my community, but I know that they're issues and I know that they need to be resolved in some way. And I don't have to be um, someone directly impacted by that to care. So, yeah. That's good.
0: All right. And so here's our last question. Um, These are good segues. That's a good segue into this last question. So what roles or tactics to address racial injustice are appropriate and or inappropriate for the church? Um, And an example is, uh, so should the church be involved in politics, protesting, or direct advocacy to government officials?
5: Um, I think when we did... The, when we came together with the different churches from around the city and marched and protested, I thought that was awesome. That was actually my first protest that I ever had done, and doing it with the church was really powerful for me because I saw the people in the church walking with me about an issue that sometimes is only put on my back. Like I saw that burden being shared with others, and I, that was really powerful for me, just as an individual, to see that. Um, I think when we get into the lanes of um, other, you know, politics or any other direct advocacy that we have to um, be mindful like of our of our roots and of um, our beliefs and our backgrounds because it would be, I think it would be um, a miss to say that we all have the same political backgrounds or that we all have the same political beliefs. And I think that involving each other in um, a blanket push towards, um, you know, fighting with the Democrats or fighting with the Republicans or like making sure Anita Alvarez is out of office or whatever else, Um, if everyone doesn't truly believe that, I think that that's okay as long as we get back to the issue of, but what can we do now that these people are oppressed? What can we do together? And um, not necessarily, who are we going to put in office to make sure this is fixed? Because even the people in office don't have the power that we have as a community. And so I think that we have the privilege of being on the ground with people that are around us who would trust us because we go to their grocery stores, we go to their schools, we live in their neighborhoods. And I think that as a collective, um, we can do a lot more than, than trying to have other people who are already in office trying to have us listen to what they're saying, to what we're saying.
4: Um. So well, maybe I, I I also like I grew up. I come from a tradition of like liberation theology, which you know it was uh, birthed in 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 Latin America, and it's a theology a theology of the oppressed. You know, it's it's looking at the gospel through the eyes of the oppressed, and in that, um, <laughs> I think um, we like who I. You know, I'm grounded in that, in liberation theology. I do think that God has a a preferential... There's uh, a preference for the oppressed and a uh, preference for the poor. Um, Specifically, you know, in in liberation theology, it's like we talk a lot of... They talk a lot, uh, theologians, about um, preferential option for the poor. And um, in this context, and we're talking about um, racial issues... I think of and actually of any injustice, I think of Jesus as a liberator and not only a liberator in the sense of um just of sin but on or just not of a spiritual sin, but there's a lot of other sins there is um you know structurally it's this is we live in a sinful structure, and um I do believe that that Jesus and the church has the uh, responsibility to fight against that structure. Um, and uh, Justo Gonzalez, um, um, in a book that is called uh, Mañana, um, it's a theology for, like, from Latin America, something like that. Um, he actually says, and, and I was um, reading a night like this, he basically says that um, religion is just conveniently apolitical. Okay, it's it's apolitical or we say that it's apolitical if like the president says, God bless America. Or if, uh, you know, they pray pray in Congress or like they have the what the National Day of Prayer and all of that, that's apolitical. But if a religious leader gets involved in issues of immigration reform, uh, that's political. If, you know, if they talk in behalf of um, oppressed like farm workers, oh, that's political. So I think um, religion and the church is only apolitical when it's trying to, it's apolitical when they are supporting the status quo. When the church actually speaks against injustice, then we say that it's, it's political. Um, and um, Oscar Romero, which was a, a priest, um, in El Salvador, and he was actually assassinated um, during the Civil War in El Salvador. He has like this um, saying if, if you allow me, I'm gonna read really fast. <laughs> um, but this is like, in, in a collection of his homilies, uh, This is something that he says. He says, It is very easy to be servants of the word without disturbing the world. A very spiritualized word. A word without any commitment to history. A word that can sound in any part of the world because it belongs to no part of the world. A word like that that creates no problems starts no conflicts. What starts conflicts and persecutions, what marks the genuine church, is the word that, burning like the word of the prophets, proclaims and accuses, proclaims to the people God's wonder to be believed and venerated and accuses of sin those who oppose God's reign so that they may tear that sin out of their hearts, out of their societies, out of their laws, out of the structures that oppress, that imprison, that violate the rights of God and of humanity. This is the hard service of the word. But God's spirit goes with the prophet, with the preacher, for he is Christ who keeps on proclaiming his reign to the people of all times. So the, all that to say that I do believe that we as church, and um, and I'm not saying we should support one political party or another but or that, but that we do need to get involved in just getting our voices heard. And one way of doing that is through the political process through protesting, through empowering our communities, uh, you know, economically and through development. Um, so that's how I see the church. I see the church being the gospel in action.
3: I agree. I mean, <laughs> yes, the short answer to that question, yes, absolutely. I mean, you cannot read scripture without seeing it as fighting for the oppressed, without um, with the church oftentimes we we jump over the greatest commandment to get to the Great Commission. We'll want to go send missionaries. We'll go and we'll try to go save souls, but we forget that God said, we'll love your neighbor. Um, How do I love my neighbor as myself if my neighbor is is, is being oppressed? If if my neighbor is hurt, then if I was being that, I would fight for myself, right? So you can't can't separate that. Um, We look at you know, you look at the Old Testament, you look at Job, and I love it. I love the message version of that, of that book because it says, you know, God, God pointed him out as, you know, his, the people among people. He was lifting up Job, and it says that Job stomped on the fangs of injustice. That's a very vivid thing. You know, he stomped on the fangs of injustice. You read throughout, the, you know, Isaiah, any of the prophets, you can't get away from God saying, you know, love the poor, love the oppressed, the widow. The orphans fight for those who can't, um, you can't separate that. So as the church, yeah, as you said, I don't know how you would be the church um, without you. In fact, I don't think you are the church unless you are, or unless you are following what he was saying, um, which is not an easy thing. And you're going to disagree with how to do that. And I think that's what the beauty of the church is, is that we have to stay at the table because of Christ's call in all of our lives. So, and we can duke it out, but let's duke it out on how we're going to be doing this instead of, oh, are we going to uh, be doing it or not? Um, Because that's not even, if you read scripture, it's not even a question.
1: Um, So the way I read it, there was a couple of ways I I took this. Um, First is sort of, as the church, as individuals, should we participate in these forums? And I would say, for sure, right? So if you feel called to run for office... I don't, but yeah, yeah, I'll support you and I'll pray for you. And but, but the question is sort of collectively, right? And I think that's something I've always struggled with is I usually probably in my sort of whiteness, right, have thought about, well, is that, am I comfortable with the notion of the church as a collective doing something political, right? And for a long time I thought, no, we shouldn't because that's not why we exist, blah, blah, blah. I don't, I actually don't agree with myself anymore on that. I think it is important because collectives, particularly when it's a movement of God, that's how things change. And if any collective is going to do it, it should be the church, right? Now, again, this doesn't mean we're all like, you know, all facing the same direction with the same like exact ideals. That's not that's not realistic, um, and nor should that keep us from actually moving. But I think, like like we've been saying, there's no. That's not an excuse to not move. And, I mean, I don't know what that tangibly looks like, to be honest. I think certainly protesting things like that are part of it. Um, I don't know if that means we propel Pastor David to office or something like that. You know what I mean? I, I would say, I think he would say probably no. Um, and I don't, I, don't, I don't think that's the answer because any one person is corruptible in that spot. Right? So, so perhaps it, the, the question more is, regardless of who's in power the church is always going to present the butt and like be a thorn in the side kind of presenting and always talking and speaking for those who don't have voices. Uh, and I, and so my sort of answer to this question is I think it matters who we are as we engage in these activities more than like necessarily how we're sort of doing it or what we're doing. I think our, our posture, who we are is more important. In other words, do christians as christians do we look different are we different in how we engage these or are we going to also just get caught up with like throwing stones and you know like oh get rid of this guy and then somehow hope that the next one's going to be better because it's not it's just not not this side of jesus coming back it's you know let like this i think that and maybe i'm cynical but i i don't think any one person's going to fix this for us uh i think it's a continuous call as the church to speak for those who don't have voices, because they're not going to be empowered, right, by the world, right, that's not going to happen, um, and when it does, the person probably gets assassinated or something, so, like, that's... I, I, sorry. <laughs> the, you know, the, the, the way we've always done these things just isn't, it's not going to work, it, it doesn't work, why would we think we're any better? I think as a church, it means we, we humbly follow a Christ who did, in fact, get assassinated, right? Um, so we shouldn't expect anything different to happen for us, and, and now I'm losing my train of thought. So I'll <laughs> just stop and say, at, uh, yeah, I, I think this requires a lot of humility, a lot of prayer, more perhaps than it does, like, where, which direction are my feet going in? How about we let Holy Spirit light our feet, and that's where we spend our time, and then support each other and hold each other accountable when we're called into these really difficult areas. Uh, Because, man, it's impossible for any of us to do this on our own, right? Um, That seems like a good place to stop. I've
2: been struggling to answer this question throughout the week. I really don't know. Like, I've been trying to come from different angles. I really don't know how to Articulate an answer for such a question Um I think that it's extremely Complicated in the sense that yeah there's This one side was it's just like you can look at Jesus And say well look at what Christ did Christ was a rebel and look at how much they talked About money and, and wealth in the Bible And you know he defended the poor And you know he, uh, You know sexism He fought sexism he did all these things right Uh racial reconciliation And you can keep going on and on about how radical The Bible is if you really get down to the core of it Um I don't know how that looks systemically in a church body. Um, I, and then I started reflecting on my dad. Um, my father grew up, born and raised in Chicago, but his parents were born and raised in Mississippi. Um, and I wanna say his mother pretty much just had a high school education for what it was worth coming from Grenada. And his father more of an eighth grade education, more or less. Um, but when it came to Chicago, the thing to do the The thing to do was to to was to, to uh, convert to Catholicism when they came up from uh, the south. And the reason why they converted to Catholicism was because back in those days, in the fifties, my dad was born in the early fifties. Um, back in those days, uh, you could get an education in the Catholic school system as long as you converted to Catholicism. And I believe you had to show up. Even when I was growing up in the Catholic, I grew up in the Black Catholic Church. Even when you grew up in the in the Black Catholic Church, um, if you were going to even for my generation, a lot of my friends and cousins, they went to Catholic school. Um, I was one of the few who stayed in public, but we would all go to mass together. And um, even at the parish, if you, went to, if you went to the school at the parish, you at least have to come to mass once a month, right? And so, but the reason why they all converted was because of the opportunities it gave them. And what the, church, what the Catholic church did was they provided... Quality resources into an institution of education Right, so now you're taking All these people who have not seen an education Since the enslavement of their ancestors Hundreds of years ago And now you're providing them with an education So they can grow up to become competent people Right, like at the end of the day It's going to be up to you to decide What policy you're going to support and vote on Like I can't look at you just because we're both Christians And be like, how dare you vote for this politician Or how dare you, you, you support this political cause Like, we're all entitled to those opinions Like I see Christians that I know in social media, because they're Christian, they're like mad liberal, right? But others, because they're Christian, they're mad conservative. Like, then they're both relating to these political ideologies through how they identify as Christians. So what am I supposed to argue with these people as far as the role of the church? I don't know how to have that argument with them because they're both swearing up and down based on the Bible and Jesus that this is why I'm conservative and this is why I'm, I'm liberal. Okay, you know, um, but what happened in our community just growing up with my dad and whatnot, you know, it's just that we put out educated people in the Black Catholic Church. That was our way of fighting the system. Now you have a bunch of working professionals who can start their own businesses, uh, who can go work for other companies, public sector, private sector. Some of them grew up and become teachers in a public school, even though they were raised in a Catholic school. You know, whatever the case is. But it's what gave strength to my dad growing up in Chatham and growing up in Grand Crossing. Those neighborhoods were heavily black Catholic. And so they had the resources before they all picked up and moved. You know what I'm saying? But they picked up and moved because they could afford to pick up and move. So it just consistently kept them in the race, in this society. Um, I just think that at the the foundation, regardless of the concept of being liberal, progressive, or what policies you support and what the church, the role is through political systems, my thing is that I've come to the conclusion of if, if the ministry is not empowering, at least I'm, I can, I'm only going to speak from my own demographic, if the church is not empowering black people, I don't really know what your point is. If it's not the empowerment of, um, if it's not producing competent black people, I don't really know what your point is. And historically, even the black church outside of Catholicism, if you look at the missionary Baptists and the AME and all those other black churches, the more traditional ones, you know what I'm saying? They were involved in the start early on. Like when guys went door to door in black neighborhoods, starting the black banking system, those guys belonged to the black church. Those were congregants of the black community. The, The black church was the, the center of their political ideology as well as religious ideology. So, if if the church is not about the empowerment of, we can march in the streets and do this, that, and the other. But if we're not producing people who can create a systemic structure for themselves, I don't really know what your purpose is.
0: All right, so um, we do have a little bit of time, um, so I want to open it up. That was awesome. So first, can we thank our panel? It was really good. So um, I'm going to just go out. I'll be the runner. Um, If you have any questions that you'd like to pose to the panel or any um, comments, this is the time to do so. You can just raise your hand and I'll come to you. For real? (laughs) Like they said, amazing things and very thought-provoking things, and we're all a thoughtful group of people. So I feel like thank you.
1: <laughs> I, I feel peer pressure to ask a question right now. Uh, this is I, Aaron. I I really was. I I feel like there was a, a lot of consistency with what you were saying throughout all your answers. But and the and the question I have about the last thing you said is. Um, I was wondering if you were talking more so from the perspective of like our church, like that, what is the purpose of our church in empowering black people? Like, is that the same thing as you would maybe say to a group of Asian Americans in an Asian American church or a group of, uh, you know, white people in a predominant like a white church? Is it the purpose of every church or the church as like a body to be doing that in America?
2: Let me try to understand your question uh, <laughs> so I can answer it. Um, so if I were in an Asian church and we were having this discussion, am I speaking for the Asian church's role in the Asian community? Is that what you're asking me? Uh, no, in life. Okay, just in general. Yeah. You know, that's very interesting because in my mind, I revert back to what role is the Asian church playing for the Asian community? Um, so... Now, what role, because I mean, firmly, clearly, I'm the type to believe that Asian church clearly needs to have a role in the Asian community, and if it's not empowering Asian people, then we need to question this Asian church here, but now if you look outside the walls of their own ethnicity, their own culture, right, like what role do they play as Christians, as, as members of the body of Christ, to the rest of the world, Um. I think there needs to be a, a type of respect that the church has. Like, one thing that I think is missing in its concept of when people start talking racial rec- reconciliation is respect. Respect for other demographics, other people, other communities. Um, and it's like I stated before, like, we would get together with the Latinos and be like, let's go do this, right? So, yeah, I would have to say, where's the Asian church when it's time to go do this, right? You know what I'm saying? Because eventually they're going to come for you, too. And then when they come for you, I'm going to be standing outside like I told you so. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm, I'm petty like that. And so, you know what I'm saying? So um, it's just kind of like, you know that, right? So it's just like, yeah, where is the Asian church when it comes to that to that, to that that relationship and that aspect? Like, are you going to be standing next to these other other groups of people who are defending those who are discriminated against consistently and oppressed? Because... I mean, if you look at the history of Asian Americans, especially those who have been in this country for a long time on the West Coast coming from California, that history is not very sweet, right? Like, there's a lot going on there for them. Uh, So we've all experienced historically, as communities, discrimination and oppression one way or the other. Um, And I don't recall too many times you've overcome that oppression, regardless of how pro-Asian you are, regardless of how pro-Black or pro-Latin, I don't ever recall, I can't really pinpoint, like I say, the liberation is up to yourself, but no one has truly ever made any progress by themselves, right? They're ha- they're, the coalition is somewhere where you're working with someone, so all churches need to have that, but at the same time, I think my issue in answering that question is also, like what Juan said earlier, the church is some of the worst at this. Right? We're talking about the role of the church, but some of the most racist people in this country, the institution of, and no offense, the institution of the white church, right? Like, white Christians are the ones who enslaved the Africans, right? The white Christians are the ones who made laws that said, just because the African is a Christian, don't mean you can free them now. Like, you're going to stay a slave, right? The most oppressive people historically in this country came from a Christian background. So, what is the role of the church in that when the role of the church is the problem in the first place? At least in the context of this country, Right? Um, so, and ideally, in a perfect world, I would say yes. But then at the same time, because people are people, and we know how people are, it's kind of hard, like, I I have a hard time navigating such a question. But I get what you're saying, and ideally, yes.
1: Can I add something real quick to that? Mm -hmm. Can I add something? I I think, whether it's, like, a predominantly monocultural, whatever, I think there needs to be an understanding of... The history of the land that we live in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a there's a tendency to sort of be like, well, I you know, I am Asian American or I'm Korean American, so this, I'm only going to pay attention to that history. I think we need to pay attention to the larger history, and I think some others have mentioned this because just read just read it just a little bit, and you'll just see, wow, this is some supremely messed up stuff, you know. And and this isn't unique to U.S. history. This is sort of human history where there's groups that oppress others in significant and dehumanizing ways that we just choose to not think about but in the not thinking about it we lose the that's the reason we need to resist it because what like you said whether it happens now or later it's going to happen we can't live in this like pollyanna world where we think oh we'll be just fine we'll we'll figure it out we'll overcome this or it doesn't work that way and i think if we if we deny the history that we're a part of then we can forget that like this is a pattern and something that we need to respond to, and in the awareness of wow, this happened to you know this group of people and it's it's still impacting the way things are now like it's it's you start drawing those lines and you see okay yeah this 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 needs to be responded to even if I wasn't again a part of that equation. I should interject myself into it because this is this matters on a human level, especially for christians so
6: so this is for everybody um how do you guys go about dealing with like people or entities who are resistant to the things in which you guys are saying based off of experience so um let's say you know you know that there is um an entity systemically or there's an individual who just shares um, a mentality that is completely reverse of what it is that you're saying, um, that's just reverse of being progressive. And you know that that entity or that individual is just kind of stuck in their way. But yet, let's say that that individual's a friend or, you know, somebody who you're close to or that entity is something, you know, you work for or associated it with by, you know, I don't know, maybe by an organization that you're a part of or whatever. How do you guys go about dealing with that?
3: So for a lot of years, and I'm still doing a little bit, I do consulting and coaching with churches. And um, some of them, big white churches who want to do outreach and do all those great things now, right? Because it's become this justice, has become like a social greatness. Um, and yet you, you have some conversations and that rooted of, Okay, you guys don't know really and you're you're not there yet and for a lot of times I would just keep going and and jumping in and banging my head against the wall all the time and I realized I didn't have that much energy or time in the day. Um so for me for and this could be very different, I'll go and I'll still have those conversations and I'll plant the seeds, but I'm going to go with those who already can have some movement with because that's going to eventually people will kind of join in or they'll they'll separate. But Um, I can't change anybody's mind. There's that. There's the prayer. There's, I will plant seeds. I will go and do all those things. I will still go and have. I was out at a church a couple weeks ago and they asked, well, why does Black Lives Matter and not all lives matter? So I had this discussion about this and I will continue to do that. But I'm not going to keep saying, okay, well, now you need to hire me as a consultant because we needed this. Or now you need to hire my friend Jonathan Brooks, who's a Southside Black Pastor in Englewood, as a consultant because you need his stuff. I will always make those connections, but I can't spend. 24 hours a day doing that so I'm going to find those who are on, on or who are like yeah I, underst- I don't understand it but I want to understand it how do I and spend more energy there and just plant seeds other places and pray other places and keep going and that could be a wrong approach but I was driving myself crazy I was <laughs> Um so in my mind I have the I have two
5: groups filed um, I have names for them um, the colorblind and the hard hearts now The colorblind, um, and I put that in quotations because what is that anyway? um, That group is like the well-meaning group who, like, they're against you, but it's because they don't really have enough information to, like, be for you, and they kind of just, like, want to be positive but also seem as if they're progressive when they don't actually want to regress. So in my mind, they're called the colorblind team because they think that saying that, no, 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 I'm colorblind is a positive statement when, in fact, it is not. Um, that they want to know more about um, how to empower you. But again, if you choose or want to use the term colorblind, you're trying to erase all of the things that come with people of color um, because you want to also be blind to their problems. So these are the people, again, that say, no, I don't see color. I don't teach my kids to see color because we're just colorblind. Um, and I think that to live in a world, again, where you're putting yourself in a, forceful binary black and white is not doing anything of service to people who are still struggling um in that binary and color is beautiful so why you would choose to be blind to it I don't really know why that would be it only makes it easier for yourself but then again holds us all back and then for the hard hearts um the way I filed them away is just I used to um really come to those group of people just with anger, with lots of anger um, and fear on, on a, many levels because I'm just fearful of what their ignorance did to people who looked like me and why they couldn't see why, um, why it mattered when unarmed people would be murdered or why it mattered that people were fighting for justice and why they would um, attack me with criticism of why, you know, like she said, why can't all lives matter and all these things? Um, and so the only way that I can come in contact with people is through prayer. Um, talking to them right off the bat in response to them. Never, ne- Nothing ever good comes of that I've learned about myself. Um, whether it's coming back with a sense of anger or with a sense of just like... I'm just so... like It can be... Um, really draining as a person like that. And you cannot come to people like that without um, the Lord on your side through prayer because there's just no way that you can soften a hardened heart. That's God's job. And that's what I've learned about um, myself, especially in this past year. Difficult lesson for me to learn, but a good one.
2: Um, to answer your question, to the best of my ability to answer your question, um, I find myself arguing with people all the time. And um, whether it's in person or social media, I just argue with people. I've been arguing since I was a child. Um, and, you know, but then it does get to a certain point where you're like, man, I'm in my 30s. I am tired of arguing with people. Um, you just get to a point where, like, I, my method these days, I mean, I might still argue once in a while if someone tries to challenge me. But I just got to get to a point in life now where I just, I just live like I'm just going to do me. Like, honestly, like, I, can't, I ain't got time to be worried about you. You know what I'm saying? Like, because the reality is this, is that like, you know, it's interesting is that, and I'm not trying to sound hopeless, but it's so funny because like the Bible makes references to the fact that poverty is not going to go away. Sin is not going to go away, right? You just have to keep working, right? That, that, but, the, but the essence in itself of injustice will not go away, right? Racism is not going to go away, even if it manifests itself in another form 50 years from now, right? It's not going to go away. So I'm not going to sit here and waste my time arguing with you. I'm just going to go ahead and keep on working and doing me, you know, and living by that example. And, you know, if I ever become a family man and have children of my own, you know, I'm big on socializing. Like, I've learned this concept from this guy on the Internet, the concept of socializing. I'm going to socialize my children to think and live a certain way, right? My friends are who, who hang out with me and are around me, we talk. They see my my militant black books laying on a coffee table. So then they start asking questions out of amusement, but then they walk away like, oh, you know, like they start thinking about that, you know, and sometimes they change certain aspects of their habit. Like you just have to live and other people see what you're doing. And honestly, i am be honest with you. I think a lot of people are bandwagon riders. Like if you get enough momentum going, they'll just start doing it too. People ride bandwagons. Like People talk to me about race and integration all the time, and I'm like, no matter what you say, most black people will always live around other black people. It's the way the country is designed. So no matter what you try to argue with me around about integration, they're going to live around each other consistently. Other people are going to sell their homes and move away from you consistently because that sin is never truly going to go away. So while I'm over here doing my work and investing in my neighborhood and my people, you're going to end up realizing that actually investing in black people is cool, and then you're going to finally invest in black people. You're going to jump on that bandwagon. That's my mentality.
7: Um, I got a lot of questions, but we'll start with um, the politics, because uh, I, I like politics. And so um, the role of the church in helping the poor has been uh, evolving and very obvious. Um, and the deeper I understand social justice uh, advocates, the... More I, the less I see systematic empowerment uh, thrusts into politics, i.e. P- distinct pathways that the church uh, helps individuals go into politics. Uh, can, can you speak to um, your opinion of whether or not the church should specifically uh, help organize and develop leaders uh, as an Esther, to go into politics uh, in the U.S. Then I have a follow-up question.
2: I won't, I won't be long with this one. I definitely want to hear other people speak real quick, but since the mic was already in my hand. Um, <laughs> okay, so this is the thing, and I'm not trying to put people on blast, right? But unless I'm misinterpreting your... Let me know if I'm misinterpreting your question, but I'm trying not to put people on blast here. Um, there's a particular... Okay, Let's talk about some of these churches out here now in the black community, right? Um, let's put politics into play here. Let's talk about Governor Ronner. and where Governor Ronner was running for governor and how many of these black pastors who have made themselves political entities are running around with a multi-billion dollar white man who is racist and classist and who is a total hypocrite when his daughter went to a unionized public school on the north side of Chicago but hates unions and then wants to privatize everything, stripping unions, right? And then... Here go these black pastors courting this man around their congregations, their neighborhoods. This is what politics has – this is what has become of politics in a black church, being this this political engine, right? Like, we can put all these leaders – and then I can think of another church whose pastor I won't name was involved in a questionable real estate deal um, a couple of years ago so he can get his hands on a charter school, right? So, you know what I'm saying? It's just, it was, and he was doing some backdoor stuff with the mayor. But then when it hit the press, all of a sudden he lost the charter school. The deal don't go through this, that, and the other. Like, when people start vying for a certain type of power in our society, it's just like, whether you're in the church or you're not, you're not free from corruption, right? You're not free from, you will sell your own people out in a second. Like, I don't talk about black empowerment and, and, and political structures in the church and this, that, and the other for the sake of Black righteousness, I talk about it because you need to have ownership of yourself and systemic structures. At the end of the day, if you ain't nothing, you ain't never going to be nothing. When I say that in your mentality of the type of person you are as far as being corrupt, right? If you're dirty, you're dirty. Every group of people, demographic or religion, they got dirty people. And it's just a matter of who's in power or not. So I think we have to be careful of... The church producing these leaders. I think that, and I think that's why I always went back to my father's upbringing. Their church was never interested in producing leaders, right? Their church was interested in producing competent people who can think for themselves and who can take care of their own communities. Now, who you're going to vote for and who you're going to put into a particular position of power, that's up to you, but you're educated, and now you can make an informed decision for yourself. But to actually take specific people and talk about leadership and put them here and there and the other... You know, next thing you know, I mean, I'm sorry, I was a history major in college. I can go back to Constantine. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if church and politics should be going hand in hand. Next thing you know, some guy who who became the head of something is rewriting his own Bible and telling you what to do in church. So I I I don't know if that's really a very safe thing to do or an accurate thing to do, you know. And Democrat or Republican in politics, you know, at least coming from a black perspective, living in Chicago, you know, ain't neither one of them worth nothing. You know what I'm saying? Like, if Democrat was all that special and we got all these black, pe- black pastors from churches who took offices in Democrat congressions and all them, and this, that, and the other, you know, you could go to Boston, Chicago, Detroit. These are all heavily Democratic areas where you got church leaders involved in politics. They turn out to be no different from the rest of these politicians. And black people are still running around with bummed out neighborhoods and they're poor. You know, so what difference does it really make?
7: Okay, so not so not to debate with you, but I'm coming from the scripture, right? So the, our scripture for today, we have a situation in which the uh, social uh, structure, infrastructure, was akin to the church structure. And you had the leaders uh, recognize that we need to pick individuals specifically to create a new structure by which people can thrive. From a social uh, justice understanding therefore and so if we draw that out to the US we've unfortunately separated church and state and so now we have the church now reluctant so the people who actually get it in terms of social justice have been reluctant to do what our scripture has done in terms of putting people into the system uh, such that they can create a socially justified or justice uh, oriented infrastructure and so that's why I posed the question, because it's our reluctance as a church body to create and put people into place that has allowed the seculars who proclaim the gospel to be empowered to uh, perpetuate the corrupt system, if that makes sense.
2: No, I completely get what you're saying. And, and it was very because like even when we went across that scripture um, at church, you know, I thought about that same thing. That question has crossed my mind, too. I definitely get where you're coming from in that. Um, and, but, you know, I still had questions about that scripture because in one aspect, you know, we're looking at the church body, right? In that scripture, there was an issue within a church community, a community of believers who already knew each other, right? So they're handling their own affairs within their own body, right? They weren't talking about, at that time, the rest of civilization. And they weren't running for political offices in that situation. You had a group of people in, within their own family saying, hey, I feel neglected in this form. Right. What's going to be done about this? And then this was their solution. And all the Hellenistic uh, Jews, the ones who felt marginalized within their own family, they ended up standing up to become those leaders. Um, now, the thing is, is that it didn't step that didn't go outside the church. Right. That stayed within a church body. Um, I think that the concept of what we talk about all the time is that the purpose of the kingdom is to reflect something that the world isn't reflecting. Right. So they were reflecting something that the rest of the world wasn't going to reflect around them Um, now. But now we're talking about, at least my understanding of your question is, now we're talking about going out into the rest of the world. Now we're talking about stepping outside of the kingdom. Right. And even within that, I just the way that these political structures are formed, like I say, we have. Pastors from these churches who they stand up for the black community or they'll stand up for the Latino community and they stand up for the working class and they stand up for the working poor and they go into political office, but they're still in political office playing, playing the game. They're playing ball like they've all succumbed to that. Um, And that's why I think sometimes just my opinion and like I get where you're coming from. But once you step outside of the standards that are set for your ministry, your kingdom. Once you step outside of that, when you step into secular politics in the United States, you're not playing by those rules anymore. You're not living by those standards within that system anymore. First off, you're representing a lot of people who aren't even Christian and don't care nothing about Christianity. You have to appease those people. You know what I'm saying? You're appeasing corporate executives. You're, you're appeasing all these other Titans out here and you're trying to stay in office. So that's why I think like, I'm not saying that the church should or shouldn't be separate from from the state or whatever the case is But When you got a bunch of people where their existence Is constantly basically following around this pastor Or following around this deacon Who's like I'm going to go represent us in congress But then he gets to congress and he's just like the last guy Who was in congress Like it's the same old thing it's, 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 it's the same wheel, it's the same structure As opposed to producing competent people Who can just stand up and challenge the structure themselves That's all I'm saying So like I get where you're coming from because I think about that too and I can't really 100% come up with an answer for it. But just from what I'm seeing in the world is all is all is the only way I can answer it.
0: All right, so we're going to take um, one more question and then wrap it up.
8: <laughs> um, I think, you know, having worked in journalism and politics, I think having seen, like, the stuff that happens in politics, Anthony, currently with the campaign finance process being what it is, there's it's just not happening. I think you're just going to see what... Um, Aaron is talking about like there's it's people are going to be corrupted no matter what because you have to play the game in order to get elected and then you have to keep playing the game to stay elected you know so uh, so so my question is exactly tied to that so I am quite depressed about the country and the world you know I'm quite um hopeless about where things are headed So for the panel, very quickly, this might sound like a softball question, but it's not. I really do genuinely want to know, how do you guard yourself from hopelessness? And, um, you know, I don't, you know, like, what are some tangible ways? Not just like, oh, you have to just believe. I don't want to hear that, you know? (laughs) Like, what are some things that you do to um, remind yourself or to practice hope? I don't know.
1: I can start since I guess I'm holding Mike. Um, I guess for me, part of it is just returning to Scripture and remembering God's promises. Because, and also remembering that part of that promise is that this isn't going to change completely until Jesus comes back. And I think to think otherwise is probably setting ourselves up for hopelessness. It doesn't mean change can't happen, but I don't think we're seeing paradise on earth until you know Jesus comes back. And I think that's just part of the deal. That's how serious sin in all of its forms is. So I think remembering that um, helps me to remember the difference I can make is in the people who, I, who are in my life on a regular basis and to make sure I'm not disengaging from those relationships and that I'm, I'm being as intentional and as present as I possibly can be to the people God's called me to, be them my you know community group or my church or my coworkers or my neighbors to not neglect those people who God's put in front of me for the sake of something bigger that I can't touch but that's pissing me off because it's it's seems broken and it is but the people around me aren't hopeless right because Jesus died for these people so I don't want to I, I hate to answer in such an evangelical way but I I don't know what else there is because I'm not the president, I'm, and you know, I, I, and if I was, I would be just as bad as anybody else who would take office. Believe me, I'm very open to bribes and stuff like that. So, you know, like it's not, that's not that's not going to be. So, so I've got to be, I've got to be, I've got to be present to the calling God's put on my life, to the people in my life, and that's hard enough, isn't it? I mean, that's hard enough to love people who are like you're like. Ugh. So I feel like that's challenge enough, and that keeps me grounded and, and to some degree hopeful in the promises that God has made. So, yeah.
4: <laughs> okay. Um, how do I guard myself? I was just thinking I'd stop watching the news for a while because um, it just gets me mad. Um, I think, and maybe this is sort of like a cop-out, but like lately, um, especially because I feel that there's... Um, and specifically the environment um, towards, like, immigrants and, like, the immigrant community, and it's not good. Um, And um, I think, I think I've choose to not engage as much with people who I think may have a certain feeling towards immigrants, towards Mexicans, towards, um, you know, that refugees and all of that um right now like that's what I choose to do to just um, surround myself with like-minded people and um, at that that at times that means that I sort of like shut down certain conversations because I just and in in a way like <laughs> sort of like Aaron said like right now I just don't have time to argue with you because it's just I can't um I don't know if that's best thing to do but I think that at times that's what I need to do to just keep myself from getting even more hopeless than what I already feel
5: Um, I just think to answer your question if we're making things actionable just understand that hopelessness is a choice so if you decide to wake up every day and be hopeless that's a choice that you're making so what can you do then to be hopeful or or create something that brings hope to yourself and other people? So if you wake up every day and you're like, oh, my God, this sucks. It sucks being black. It sucks being American. That's what you're going to feel. If you don't know how to create opportunities or create actionable items for people to be successful, then that's on you. Um, the people that are making you feel that way, they're perfectly fine with themselves. So what are you doing um, in order to feel different? Um, so I think... That if you're surrounding yourself with images and people and words and ideas and thoughts that you want to see, your whole mindset changes about the things that you choose to see. So if I know that they are going to slant things in the media about people that look like me or, um, I don't know, do whatever crazy things that Fox News does every day, I know that I can choose to do something or say something or hear something different and then create my own lane. So... Everything that you encounter and that you decide about yourself is a choice. Um, and I mean, that's as actionable and non-evangelical as it gets.
3: (laughs) Uh, Really quick, really tangible. I have a cohort of about 21 of us around the country who are doing different types of work with this. So at any point I can call or anyone can call me and just release lots of swear words and say, okay, thank you, I feel better, and hang up or whatever that is, but then also we share stories of hope, stories of success, stories of, hey, look at this, this is what happened, this is what we've done in our community. So you hear that, and, which, is, which is great, but then also you can lament with each other, cry with each other, and then go on. So that's been really helpful. And the 20 people is all different backgrounds, and, I mean, it's a very diverse group, so it's not just one style.
0: All right, so I'm going to hand the mic to Dennis, who's going to um, close this time for
9: us. Can we just thank our panel one more time? And also thank Michelle for for moderating. Thank you. It was uh, the hope in having this panel uh, that, as several of the panelists said, that you are having these conversations, that you are seeing, that you're pointing out, and. Uh, I also hope that as the panelists were talking that you saw things in each of them that you could identify with. Um, they There were definitely some commonalities between them. There were definitely some differences. But I hope that you could see something in each of them that you could identify with. And as much as anything else, uh, the goal of this entire series was to begin to give us a language, a common language, to discuss these things with each other so that you can talk about hope and you can talk about uh, gentrification, you can talk about privilege um, from a common understanding of what those things mean. So uh, we are also hoping that you are using your uh, community groups to have extended conversations. We're not meeting this week for community groups, but we are going to be meeting the following week to continue this conversation. So I'm hoping that you can think about these things on your own and then bring what you're learning to coffee table discussions, to to uh, community groups, to any interactions that you're having with, uh, with other members of the church or other friends that you are discussing these things, that you're formulating your ideas around injustice, around race, around racism and then sharing those things with other people to to as the, the Bible says in lots of songs I find cheesy uh, talk about ironing sharpening iron We're wanting you to to share these things so that you can develop an understanding of who God is in your life, and as a result of who God is in your life, what your response needs to be to racial injustice, to racism, even if it's your own racism. So thank you all very much for taking the time to listen and for staying a little bit later, and uh, again, thank you to the panelists.
0: Um so at this time the worship team is going to come up and we are going to collect um our offering um and I'll pray for that in a moment. Um this is again an opportunity if you have a prayer card to go ahead and put in the basket. Um but one thing I do want to just say before we uh leave is that again when there are lots of different spaces in the world or in this country where people might have a conversation about race, um, or racial reconciliation. That conversation looks different when we have it in the context of the body of Christ, because we are not people without a hope. Like we, um, No, I am, I'm definitely of the mindset because it is true. Like none of us will ever see unless Jesus comes back in our lifetime, we're not going to see a time when everything is perfect. And you know, we all get along and every injustice has been righted. But I also know that God has called us to be about some things. God has called us to work and he has given us power to do that and to be a light and to be a witness. And so when we have this conversation here, um, there is absolutely a response that the Holy Spirit has for each and every one of us. So, um, I want to encourage you with, as we are, you know, doing this final worship step, to be thinking about and, and just listening. What is the response? God, Holy Spirit, how, how are you calling me to respond to the things that I've heard today? Um, what are the things that you are saying? What do I need to be aware of? What do I need to do? Where do I need to be? What relationships do I need to pour into more? Right? Where, how are you maybe bringing conviction? So I invite you to just um, to just be able to hear and be mindful in this space. Um, so feel pray with me. I'm gonna pray for our offering and then uh, we'll have a time of worship. God, I, I I thank you again for um, the men and for the women who spoke today, um, and for every question that was asked in the congregation, and for every every word you were speaking to people who may not have said a word. God, I thank you that um, God, I thank you that your gospel is good. You are good news. You are our Jesus Christ. You are our Savior who died. For us, you died so that we could be able to sit in a room like this and have difficult conversations and do it in a space free of fear um, where there is no condemnation, God. That you have taken all of that upon yourself. So I pray, God, that we would not be people who are afraid. I pray that we would not be people who are cowards. I pray that we would be folk who stand boldly in the things and in the places that you have called us to, Lord, knowing that in you all things are possible, God, and that you are constantly working together for our good. So now, God, we pray for this time of offering, Lord. Thank you, God, that we we get to give you just a portion of what you have given to us, Lord. And I pray that you will use these gifts in very specific ways to bring about your kingdom in this community. In very specific ways to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. I ask that you would enlarge these gifts, God, and that you would be glorified in our giving. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.